Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore mental health throughout the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, including the mental health challenges exacerbated by the pandemic, as well as what all of us can learn from coping methods taught by mental health professionals. My guest is Jeff Bell, Bay Area broadcast journalist and co-founder and president of the Adversity to Advocacy Alliance, or A2A. Jeff is also the author of two books on OCD, Rewind, Replay, Repeat, and When in Doubt, Make Belief. I reached out to talk to you because mental health, and you're going to have to give me the the right language because I'm using mental health challenges, mental health issues, but I'm not quite sure what the right thing to say is. I like that language personally. Okay. Okay, great. Mental health in the U.S., it's been a journey toward greater and greater acceptance of mental health issues as a part of life and and of, of support rather than stigma. I mean, we're not there yet, but we're getting better. And I think my students, the younger generation, have been pushing this farther down the road, which is great. Absolutely. But during this pandemic, things were more challenging in so many ways. And so I'm wondering if you want to share your mental health situation. So I'm somebody living with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, the doubting disease, Um, I was misdiagnosed several times. I got my formal diagnosis in, I believe, 1993, which really was just a monumental moment in my life because it let me know what was going on that I didn't understand. Earliest memories are of dealing with obsessions and compulsions that I certainly didn't know to call mental compulsions and and, or mental obsessions and compulsions back then. Um, But When I got my diagnosis, I started learning about this disorder, and it is really marked by um, intrusive thoughts, which are the obsessions, and compulsions, which are these nonsensical rituals that those of us with OCD fall into doing um, in sort of a a vain effort to dislodge the discomfort of that intrusive thought. And it's the dog chasing its tail. It's a vicious cycle. Um, OCD is a neurological, biological brain disorder. Um, you know, the, the good news about OCD in, in 2022 relative to when I first started doing advocacy is that people know the term OCD. Unfortunately, it's often misused as a synonym for anal retentive or fastidious. And people will talk about their boyfriend being so OCD about his car. Um, part of my advocacy, Gina, is to sort of draw some distinctions between what OCD, the disorder, is and, and what the misuse of the term has become. This can be a crippling disorder and it can be a chronic disorder untreated. The good news about OCD is it's very treatable. I underwent what's called cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure response prevention therapy. With that help and with the support of loved ones, I was able to turn my life around. And today I am somebody living with OCD, not somebody who is driven to do compulsions by OCD. And it's made a huge difference in my life. When you wrote your book, it was so enlightening for so if so many ways to me and one was on a personal level i worked fairly closely with you at two stations in in northern california and had zero idea here you were you know living with this and struggling with it and i didn't know and and would have wanted to help but obviously um didn't know how to help and didn't know i needed to and and so that made me want to be more aware or more there for people who may need something but the other thing you said to me i think you wrote it in your book but i remember also talking with you about it 
was to get to that distinction question. You know, there's OCD versus anal retentiveness, OCD versus fastidiousness, but also OCD versus the normal everyday, oh no, did I forget my keys? And remember the big point that I took from that conversation with you is that mental health is a spectrum. It's not an other thing. Yeah. Yes. Mental health challenges are certainly on a spectrum. And and, and so let me tell you what I think is the reason that OCD has become such a fascination for so many people. I think there is a relatability factor to it. I do not believe, for the record, I want to be very clear about this, I do not believe that we all have a touch of OCD. OCD is a clearly defined neurological brain disorder. That said, I think that almost all of us have a lot of difficulty uh, sitting with anxiety. Uncertainty is incredibly anxiety-provoking. And there are some lessons to be learned during this pandemic that we can talk about living with uncertainty. But I, I think we all fall into what I call trapdoors in the shadow of doubt. When we get into the state of doubt, this uncomfortable uncertainty, we'll do anything to get our, ourselves out of that. And oftentimes we take shortcuts that are really trapdoors. So we start checking. And the more we check, the more we want to recheck and re-recheck. It's human nature. And what I have found, I've done this experiment, Gina, across the country now. I've been doing advocacy for about 15 years in, in the OCD arena. And I've done this consistent exercise with almost every talk I've given. It's just been fascinating to me. I will ask audiences to raise their hand if at some point in the past six months, they have backed their car out of the driveway, driven away, and wondered to themselves, did I close the garage door? And at first, people like slowly put their hands up, but then they, you know, they look around, they see everybody else is doing it, and so they'll put their hands up. They cop to the fact that they have wondered out loud to themselves, did I close the garage door? If not. And those that aren't raising their hands either don't have a garage <laughs> or are lying to me because it is just basic human nature to wonder if we have done something. And if you want, replace the garage door with, did I unplug the curling iron? Did I unplug the toaster? Did I lock the door? Whatever the case might be. And then the next question I ask is, at some point in, say, the past six months to a year, did you actually do something about it? Did you turn your car around and go back? Did you go check the toaster? Did you do whatever? And again, almost to a person, if people are being honest, they have. It is human nature. The third question that I stopped asking very early on in my advocacy, because I realized I was outing people in, in my audiences, is how many of you ever drove away from your house, wondered if you closed the garage door, turned around, drove back, saw that it was closed, felt better, drove off, and then wondered to yourself, was that my garage door or my next door neighbors that I actually checked and turned around and went back again? Now we're starting to separate those with a, a, an OCD disorder from those who just are dealing with everyday uncertainty and the discomfort of it. And I think to a large degree, Gina, that's true of so many mental health challenges. We may not have clinical depression, but we've all of us been down before. And I think that if we can tap into that experience, we can draw on empathy that we might not otherwise have. And that's so important for the overall mental health challenges discussion. I love that distinction you make and walking people down the road to this is where it turns over into here. After I will give a talk, people will come up to me inevitably and say, I do this weird thing where I have to line up blah, 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 the suit cans in a particular direction. Is this OCD? Now, I'm not a clinician. I can't diagnose anybody. But I ask them to ask themselves two questions. One, to what degree does this get in the way of my day? And two, to what degree would I be in agony if I couldn't do this? 
And for most people, it's it's this little self-diagnosis or self-analysis, and they go, yeah, it's no big deal, and I certainly wouldn't have problems if I didn't do it. That's different from OCD. And let me give you a, a personal example of that. Um, I used to have the most organized closet in America. Well, actually, that's only half true because my wife's side was, <laughs> let's, let's just say, not well organized. But <laughs> when I was in my groove, Gina, I had color-coded hangers for... Uh, Short sleeves, long sleeves, dress shirts. I mean, everything was color-coded. It was fabulous. Oh, I bet that would be very pleasing to me. I would love that. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I think you can relate to that. Or I think most people can relate to that. It would be easy to say, Jeff, that's your OCD. And here's why it's not. I mean, it it's a pattern that you might call, quote-unquote, obsessive-compulsive. Um, but it, it brought me pleasure. And to put my own test to it, was I ever you know, in agony when it wasn't organized the way I wanted? No. Um, did it ever get in the way? Did, was it ever late to work because I had to go back and, and put my clothes in order? No. Now, for some people, that could very much be part of their OCD pattern. But for me, it was something that brought me limited pleasure or, or short-term pleasure. Yeah. Contrast that to my own OCD where I had this fixation for a long time where I had to pick up rocks and twigs. And so, what, Gina, as you know, I would walk from the ferry building to um, where I worked and have to walk along the Embarcadero every day. And when I did, I would feel compelled to pick up rocks and twigs. Now, that might not be relatable to a lot of people. My, my concern was people were going to trip over them or whatever the case might be. I have hazard OCD, harm OCD. And so to put the test to that, to what degree did it get in the way of my day? It did. I was late to work at times because I had to go back and pick up rocks and twigs, which is really sort of hard to admit, but it's part of <laughs> a part of my full disclosure, if you will. Sure. And to what degree of agony would I be in if I didn't do it? I could barely focus at work some days if I knew that I hadn't taken care of all the quote-unquote hazards. So there is that important distinction between quirks and the obsessive-compulsive disorder diagnosis. We have everyday life, people moving through everyday life with or without a mental health disorder or a mental health challenge. And then we have a pandemic, a once-in-a-generation, maybe once-in-a-several-generation moment in time yeah. where you know, something happens that shifts our world upside down as this pandemic has done. And, I, you know, I saw it a lot through my students. My young students were just like, what? My world, what's happening? There's no disputing the fact that this pandemic has raised a number of mental health challenges for a lot of people. I mean, we're talking about isolation issues, people who are following stay-at-home orders, um, lack of personal interactions, students who can't get into classrooms, missing social support systems. So isolation issues are huge. Um, general anxiety around all this. Uncertainty creates anxiety. Uncertainty about my own health, the health of my loved ones, what my job is going to look like down the road. Will I have a job? What will society look like? These are all huge question marks placed right in front of us. They create anxiety. And then we've got limited access to resources that can be very critical as well for people who have been dealing with mental health challenges. They may not be able to get in and, and see their therapist in person. They may have to adapt a new virtual model. Or for some people just new to the mental health world, they may have trouble getting an appointment because there's been so much mental health challenge out there right now. So there's no question that this pandemic has raised a lot of issues. I also have this kind of personal theory. This is not scientific, but I think we all have a certain baseline anxiety. I mean, for somebody with OCD, my, my mine is probably higher than yours. And... I absolutely have a baseline anxiety for sure. 
it's my sense almost metaphorically that we can just all add a delta above that. So if your baseline anxiety is sort of high to start with, that can be real problematic. Yeah. I think that these problems are especially acute for young adults. I mean, they are used to a social network, a social world that perhaps even somebody getting older like me is not. I mean, they're used to being around a lot of people and there's constant this and constant that. They go out, they do this. That's been taken away from them. That's got to be more jarring, I think, than for a lot of us. Totally. And that's where we were building our networks, right? Like, I have a nice network now. I can rely on that at this age and in this point in my career. But they're still starting out. Now, because I'm the eternal optimist, let me put out a couple of silver linings. In, In terms of mental health in the pandemic, there is no question in my mind that this has increased our dialogue about mental health. That is key. Um, I, I'm seeing more stories in the news mix these days about mental health challenges than I have since I started my advocacy. The fact that you and I are talking about this on a podcast today, this is all really positive stuff because awareness is so key. The second piece I would point out is that I do believe it's allowing a lot of us to have empathy that we might not otherwise have had. I've had several people say to me, I think I'm getting a taste of what it's like to live in your world, Jeff. You know, <laughs> And it's like, I, I can smile and laugh and say, yeah, I think you are. Yeah. But there are also some really important lessons to be learned, um, if I might, from, from the OCD world and its treatment in, in terms of how we can apply this to the general public. And again, not everybody is dealing with OCD. This pandemic has not created OCD for people. But here's the thing. OCD is known as the doubting disease. And at its core are these what-if questions that all prompt this this uncertainty that's really uncomfortable. Those of us with OCD will do anything to try to relieve ourselves of that discomfort. Again, obsession followed by compulsion, followed by more obsession and compulsion. It's a vicious cycle. The treatment process for OCD, the gold standard is something called exposure response prevention. And that is working with a professional. This is something that you really need to do with somebody who knows how to do it you basically retrain yourself to sit with anxiety. The best analogy I've ever heard for this is in a wonderful book called Freeing Your Child from OCD by Dr. Tamara Chansky. And she talks about the idea of thinking about anxiety as a cold pool of water. Remember when we were kids, we'd jump in a cold pool and you know it was freezing and our brains were screaming at us, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> but we're kids, so we, we splash around, we hang out in there with our friends and the water gets warmer. Did the water really get warmer? No, of course not. What happened? We acclimated to it. We acclimated to it. So you're already using a clinical term there. (laughs) A lot of people would say to us, we got used to it. Right. Okay. We habituated, we acclimated, we got used to it. So when you sit with the discomfort of anxiety, it will dissipate all on its own. We know that from brain scans. Um, The problem is those of us with OCD, again, metaphorically speaking, we keep getting out of the pool. We don't want to sit with the anxiety. So we do compulsions to try to get rid of them. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to have OCD to feel that discomfort of the uncertainty. And you don't have to have OCD to to gain from this, what I've come to call the uncertainty paradox. The uncertainty paradox is simple. The only way to effectively live with uncertainty is to embrace uncertainty. It means stay in the pool. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about mental health and COVID-19 with mental health advocate, Jeff Bell. So here's what I'm seeing. Friends who don't have OCD, friends who are just dealing with pandemic anxiety, they fall through some of those trap doors that I've talked about, those things that seem to offer relief from the anxiety. 
I have friends who are uh, obsessively, compulsively checking the news, latest headlines over and over and over again. And of course, somebody in the news business would want people checking the news, right. but not to that degree. Um, it can become the equivalent of a compulsion where they're looking for signs that the pandemic might finally be ending, signs that Omicron might finally be peaking. They are looking for reassurance, if you will. There is a measured amount of all of that that's healthy, but then there's a threshold that's crossed, even for people without OCD, that becomes counterproductive. You start going through that trap door over and over again. Avoiding. This is a big one, and this is an OCD compulsion, but it's also something that we all deal with in life. Um, there are things that we are being told by the CDC to avoid doing. I'm 100% in favor of that. If you take some of that beyond there, like the CDC says, don't go out in large groups, but you say, I'm never going to leave my house. Right. Okay, that's not healthy. And that can be done because you're trying to avoid the discomfort of uncertainty. Well, if I never leave my house, I'll never have to worry about whether I get COVID or I gave it to somebody else. Well, I think we can all intellectually agree, maybe not emotionally, but intellectually we can agree that's not healthy. And, and, and so I think that there are lessons to be learned from the extreme of all this, which I see as OCD or an anxiety disorder, and what people without anxiety disorders can learn from our treatment process. Learn to sit with anxiety. It really is the only way to navigate it. It's interesting that you say that your friends who've gone through specific therapies are doing better right now than average everyday people out there. Now, all of that said, Gina, there are people who are dealing with clinical level depression and anxiety who need to get help. And there is no substitute for professional help. I am such a big believer in that. Seeking professional help is really the first thing to do. If you're listening to this and you're dealing with issues that are, are beyond situational anxiety or situational sadness, a big part of my advocacy is, is trying to break down stigma. And that's why I'm so excited about the fact that we're talking today, you and I, and the nation in general about mental illness, about mental health challenges and what we can do about them. Um, the first step is asking questions. You need to be your own best advocate. Getting emotional support. You know, finding people in your world that you can be honest with and, and tell them what's going on. Keeping it bottled up inside is so unhealthy. And it's just so important to take care of yourself. I'm a big believer in the holistic approach to all of this. You know, you got to get your exercise you got to get your sleep. you got to be kind to yourself. That is really tough, too, for all of us. In, in any conversation about mental health in the pandemic, there are people who are discovering, perhaps for the first time, that they need professional help. You know, I appreciate that. And I think about, you know, if, if you're struggling in school, you get a tutor or you go ask the teacher for help. If you break your bone, you're going to go to the hospital to get it set. There are so many areas where we, we understand the connection between this is broken or this is difficult and I need something external to help me get on track or to help me fix it. And mental health is one where historically we haven't done that. And and so this idea of, no, this is also one of those things that go get help if you need it. Absolutely. And, that, and that's the message right there. Get the help you need. Yeah. And the other thing you just said that I really want to call out is that holistic idea. Um, I don't know if it's our society specifically, but there's a lot of like, give me a pill for this or you don't have time for this. You really have to be willing to do the work. Yeah. And this is something that I can say because I spent years trying to get around the work. <laughs> I looked for every shortcut, every magic wand I could find out there. And as I say in one of my books, I was getting so frustrated that no one or nothing could fix me. That was my mentality. You fix me. 
And you really have to do the hard work. You mentioned a pill, for example, and that's an important little piece for the OCD world, for example. There are medications that can help. I have benefited from them. I have nothing against medication. I think it's a wonderful tool in our toolkit. I'm glad that it's there for us. But medication without doing the hard work of cognitive behavioral therapy, learning to reframe your thoughts, learning to stand up to your, your doubt bully, if you will, and not do the compulsions, this is all part of the package. It's not as simple as the magic wand right. or the magic pill. It really does boil down to how we take care of ourselves. So that's an important message. And we need to stay motivated. That is the key. Yes. So how do you stay motivated? How do I? Thank you for asking. Because <laughs> that, that's, that's the juice for me in the mental health advocacy world. And for me, it's what I've come to call greater good motivation. What I came to find the hard way um, is that purpose and service are much stronger motivators than fear and doubt. That may not seem like it, but they are, in fact, if you give yourself the chance to follow purpose and service in your life, as opposed to fear and doubt, you can draw on strength you didn't even know you have. There's this growing body of empirical research that supports all this. Um, here in the Bay Area, the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley is doing phenomenal work about the power of altruism, the power of compassion and empathy and service, and how all that builds resilience. And so for me, I had to come up with ways that I could increase my sense of purpose. That's what drove and continues to drive my advocacy is this notion that I want to be able to do something for a greater good. When I'm able to follow a greater good, do my advocacy, do a podcast with Gina, talk about mental health, be there for my family, whatever the cases might be, something that's bigger than me that enhances my sense of purpose and is of service to others, I can draw on strength and motivation I didn't even know I had. I agree. And I think without even knowing it, like that's why I was drawn to news, to inform people, to serve people. That's yeah. why I'm drawn to education. Yeah. This is so wonderful to be talking with you about this because to, to just name that intentionally. And thank you for saying that, Gina. I, I think at the risk of oversimplifying this, the mental health world, the professional mental health world gives us the how. We need to bring the why to the table. Okay. The, the, the psychologist or therapist can say, this is how you do the therapy. But that therapy is hard from almost any kind of a mental health challenge. That therapy can be really hard. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But you can do it if you ask yourself, why am I doing this? And then find your why. Find that purpose and do something bigger than yourself. You and I reconnected recently, Gina, because of a, of a blog post that I had, had yes. put up on Psychology Today. And in that blog post, I came clean. I, I made a confession. I've been a guy that's been talking about these principles for 15 years now. I'm out there trying to help them find their greater good and do these things. Somewhere along the way, in the first year of the pandemic, I lost my own guidance. When I deconstructed all, I realized that because of some challenges that the pandemic presented, I found myself far fewer times in front of an audience doing my advocacy. Um, and, and, and this, in retrospect, can look like a cop-out, but in deconstructing it, I realized that I didn't find new and constructive ways to do my advocacy because I was limited by the pandemic. And the less I started fueling my purpose and being of service to other people, the more I started going right back down that rabbit hole of my own challenges. I was doing a lot of compulsions. I was finding myself in a darker and darker place. And it was only when a good friend of mine sat down over lunch with me and very poignantly pointed out to me that maybe there's something to this whole idea that we help ourselves by helping others, which is the tagline of my nonprofit. And I said, oh yeah, 
We do say that, don't we? <laughs> and then from that moment on, I started digging out of the hole by finding small ways to just be of service to other people, to rebuild that sense of purpose. And it was such an affirming process because I feel great again these days. And it's because of this whole concept of greater good motivation. Well, so on that note, your nonprofit, which is amazing, and it's been around for several years now, the A2A Alliance. Ten years. Ten, Ten years. Ten years. Year. That's amazing. You've discussed kind of your why, um, but what that's been like to develop A2A and how A2A has fed your why. It has fed my why in a big way. It grew out of my own experiences. I published my first book, Rewind, Replay, Repeat, in 2007. And going public was just this huge challenge for me because of all the stigma around it. And, you know, I used to think about it as opening a door and having monsters waiting for me that were going to attack me. You know, how could you be talking about mental illness? And instead what happened was there was a room full of people, but those people were other advocates who were blazing a trail ahead of me. And they're like, welcome. We've been waiting for you. And it's like, oh, this is so cool. I found my community of, of fellow advocates out there. I knew... The more I got out there and did book talks, the more I got out there and, and, and talked about mental illness and did what I could to break down stigma, the stronger I got. And, and again, this is the same principle of, of greater good motivation. And I became fascinated by that. And what fascinated me even more was all these people I were meeting doing advocacy in all kinds of different arenas, not just mental health, physical health, people living with ALS, people living with cancer. A common thread for all of us in our recovery was learning to be of service to other people and helping ourselves by helping others. I mean, it sounds trite, but there's no better way to put it. Bottom line, it works. And so as I started networking with these other people, I wrote a second book, When in Doubt, Make Belief, which is sort of looking at this whole concept across different adversities and looking at the empirical science behind it, the grounding of it all, if you will. And I just became fascinated and I wanted to link these people up in some way that who are doing what I call adversity-driven advocacy. People with cancer reaching out to others with cancer. People with mental health challenges being of service to others with that same challenge. I think there's a unique empathy that comes with that sort of narrow casting of what the advocacy is about. And so we did that. I had no business forming a nonprofit. I'm a radio guy. I'm a very simple guy. Turn on microphone, talk, turn off microphone. <laughs> but I, I, I had a dear friend who's an attorney and other amazing people around me who helped me build this nonprofit into a 501c3. And we started networking people all across the country, telling their stories, and then providing pathways to advocacy for people who want to step into advocacy. The whole idea would be, can we inspire other people to step into advocacy simply through our own stories? We've linked up, I don't know, something like 70 plus people around the country um, who are doing adversity-driven advocacy. We tell their stories on our website, a2aalliance.org. And we are providing pathways for them to taste advocacy. We have a wonderful project called Project Hope Exchange. We do that with an organization called Life Fest Inside. And this is an opportunity for people to taste advocacy and do it anonymously. It's a simple phone number they can call or a web interface where they can leave a message. And the whole idea is to, in 30 seconds or less, speak to somebody dealing with a challenge similar to your own and give them hope. See how that feels. And we've collected all these messages from countries all around the world and we aggregate them. We put them up on our website, projecthopeexchange.com. And people can go there to get hope. I mean, they can listen to other people's messages. But the secret here is that they're probably going to do even better by giving hope. They don't realize that until they get there. And they go, ah, maybe I'll leave a message of my own. 
So A2A has evolved over the years. The pandemic has been tough on us like every other nonprofit out there, but we're rebuilding, we're regrouping, and we're more committed than ever to helping showcase the power of turning personal challenges into service to others with similar challenges. I love the way you phrased it, that when you found the courage to share your story, it opened up this world where other advocates embraced you. And for people like me on the other side of it, thank you for your bravery and generosity, because now I have more language that I can use and more uh, understanding. I am living evidence that we can go through the dark places and come back out into the light. And please, please, if you draw nothing else from what I had to say today, please take that away. There's always, always hope. Thank you to my guest, Jeff Bell, Bay Area broadcast journalist and co-founder and president of the Adversity to Advocacy Alliance, or A2A. Jeff is also the author of two books on OCD, Rewind, Replay, Repeat, and When in Doubt, Make Belief. Find out more at A2AAlliance.org and hear and share messages of hope at projecthopeexchange.com. For more resources, check out the National Institute of Mental Health, Mental Health America, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and the International OCD Foundation. We've got links to all of these resources at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.